1961, Arnold Palmer hit a great tee shot, and he set himself up to win the Masters Tournament. As he was walking to his ball, his friend put his hand out and he said, congratulations, indicating that Arnold had already won. Arnold said in that moment, he became overconfident in his ability. On his next two shots, he hit the ball into the sand, he missed the final putt, and he lost the Masters Tournament. He was this close, but he became overconfident in his ability. In hindsight, he said, I lost my focus. I lost my focus. And you don't forget a mistake like that. You see, Arnold Palmer's failure was not a result of what his friend said to him. In fact, Arnold Palmer's failure was a result of thinking too highly in his ability rather than staying humble, intentional, and focused. Have you ever heard people become overconfident in their ability? Have you ever known someone who is overconfident in their ability? They may say things like, you know, I know what I'm doing. You don't need to tell me what to do, only to fall flat on their face. Research indicates that when people watch a YouTube video of someone performing a task, you know, maybe fixing something on a car, it gives the viewer a false sense of confidence. I can do the exact same thing. And when they go out and do it, they tend to make more of a mess. Once they attempted it, they realized an error in their judgment, and they were humbled. The Bible actually talks about the dangers of overconfidence. The apostle um, Paul said in 1 Corinthians 10, 12, he said, if you think you're standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. If you think you're standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. If you think that you're standing firm in a spiritual sense, be careful, pay attention that you don't fall into sin and temptation and to make a mess of your life. Paul's warning is that we tend to overestimate our ability to say no to sin and temptation, and we underestimate the attack of Satan and his power. Rather than self-reliance, the psalmist encourages, it's better to put our trust in God than confidence in man. You see, we tend to think that we are more capable than we are. But the Christian life is not just about trying harder, but it's about surrendering, trusting, and relying upon the Lord. Today is week two of our sermon series, The Road to Redemption, and we're speaking about overconfidence. Overconfidence. You see, good motives and human effort are not enough to keep us from sinning or making a mess of our life. But it is when we humbly acknowledge our weaknesses, reshift our focus and our reliance upon the Lord, that God is able to redeem our life and he's able to make good things happen. It's when we acknowledge our weaknesses, reshift our focus and our reliance and our trust upon the Lord, that God is able to redeem our life and make good things happen. And so before we go any further, what is overconfidence? What's overconfidence? Well, overconfidence is an, is an excessively high opinion of our ability 
or it's when we think that we're better than other people. The classic example is a driver who's, you know, driving down the road, and he has confidence that, you know, I know where I'm going. I'm not going to get lost. And so he doesn't stop to ask for directions or check Google Maps, and before he knows it, what happens? He's lost, right? He's lost. You see, overconfidence communicates, I'm too perfect to make any mistakes. I wouldn't make any mistakes. You know, other people, they may do that, but not me. You know, it's a know-it-all, and they ignore the advice and the wisdom of other people. And if we don't adjust this harmful attitude, the reality is, is that we're setting ourselves up for failure. If we don't adjust this harmful attitude, we're setting ourselves up for failure. It's better to take the humble approach, learn from the wisdom and experience of other people. And so today we're looking at a conversation between Jesus and his disciples. The very night that he would be betrayed, abandoned, wrongfully mistreated, arrested, and eventually put to death. Jesus says one thing, and one of his disciples, Peter, denies Jesus' claim. There's no way, Jesus, that is true. And his overconfidence clouds his judgment to heed Jesus' warning. Our pastor's scripture is found in Matthew 26, verses 31 to 35, and this is what God's word says. Then Jesus told them, this very night you will all fall away on account of me. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I have risen, I will go ahead of you into Galilee. Peter replied, even if all fall away on account of you, I never will. I tell you the truth, Jesus answered, this very night before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. But Peter declared, Even if I have to die with you, Jesus, I will never disown you. And all the other disciples, they said the same. You see, Peter is so sure about his commitment and his loyalty to Jesus that he accuses Jesus of being wrong. He accuses Jesus of being wrong. And this is the first thing that we learn, which is this. We all need to be redeemed from our overconfidence in our perspective. We all need to be redeemed from our overconfidence in our perspective. Our perspective is what we think, how we see things. And if we're being honest, we all have a limited viewpoint and understanding. You know, when we're younger, we tend to think that, I got life figured out. I know what I'm doing. I'm 16 now. I can take the car out. And you know what? I don't need to listen to, to my parents. They don't know what they're talking about. You know, I won't make the same mistakes. You know, I got life figured out. Growing up, my parents encouraged me not to go to parties. They encouraged me not to go to parties for the peer pressure to drink or to maybe to do something that could lead to what is wrong. When I was younger... I listened to my parents, but as I got older, I started to see that all my friends were going to parties, too. Parents don't know what they're talking about. Drinking? We don't do that. No way. Teenagers don't do that. And I thought that I could say no to the temptation to drink. Long story short, 
I gave in. And I felt embarrassed and ashamed for what my parents had warned me about that I thought that I could handle on my own. Proverbs 12, 15 says, The way of a fool, it seems right to them. But the wise listen to advice. The Greek word for fool is the Greek word avail, which means a hard, thick-headed person who just will not listen. This is not a person lacking intelligence, but it's someone who refuses to apply good and sound advice. But the wise, they listen. It comes from the Greek word shama, which means they not only just hear and understand, but they actually apply it to their life. It's not just a, that sounds good. No, it's, that's really good. I'm going to apply that to my life. You see, those who are older tend to have a wiser perspective, and their advice is not to just ruin fun, but ultimately it's to protect us. It's to protect us. You see, the major issue with Peter's perspective was his unwillingness to accept, listen, and apply Jesus' warning. In verse 31, Jesus says to all his disciples, he says, this very night you will all fall away on account of me. This very night, which helps us understand this is only a few hours away. He says all of them, all the disciples, even including Peter, he says you will all fall away. You will all fall away. It comes from the Greek word skandalazo, which means to cause to stumble, to trip someone up. Jesus is describing something different than betrayal, what, Jesus, what, what Judas did. Jesus is describing something different than what Judas did. Later that night, when the Roman soldiers come to arrest Jesus, Jesus is predicting that all the disciples will abandon loyalty to him for fear of their own life. Because of what's going to happen to Jesus, they were scared that maybe they would get arrested and something bad might happen to them. And so they abandoned loyalty to Jesus. And the reason that they fall away, Jesus says it on account of me. He doesn't point the blame on another person. Jesus takes personal responsibility for what's about to happen. In fact, it's actually part of God's redemption plan for the whole world. Isaiah 53.10 says, Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him, Jesus, and cause him to suffer, and through the Lord Jesus make his life an offering for sin. Jesus' arrest will cause the disciples to temporarily abandon loyalty. But it doesn't excuse their cowardly behavior. You see, Jesus has repeatedly warned his disciples that he's going to die. Jesus said in, in Matthew 17, just a few verses er earlier, he said, the Son of Man is going to be betrayed into the hands of men. They will kill him, but on the third day he will be raised to life. Jesus communicating this to his disciples helps them know that Jesus knows the future. Jesus knows the future. His perspective is greater than the disciples' perspective. 
And when Jesus says that they will all fall away, it's true. It's true. Later in in verse 56, Scripture says, all the disciples deserted him, whose perspective was right. Before I was married, I was given the advice not to use ultimatums. I would never do that. I always clean up. I always do the dishes. I was given the forewarning not to make ultimatums. Why? Because it sets yourself up for failure. Sets yourself up for failure. You see, people would rather you be honest than lie. People would rather you be honest than lie. Did you notice the absolute statement by Peter? Even if all fall away on account of you, Jesus, I never will. I never will. At no time, whether in the present or the future. Can you sense some pride, maybe in Peter's attitude towards Jesus? Peter seems convincing. He seems convincing in his words. In fact, later we see him cut off a guard's ear to actually protect and to defend Jesus. He wants to be loyal to Jesus, but it was foolish to make such a bold statement. And I learned this week that people make ultimatums when they feel powerless to change the other person. People use ultimatums when they feel powerless to change the other person. And could the reason that Peter says never is because Peter wants to change Jesus' mind. And he tries to defend himself rather than humble himself. Peter wants to change Jesus' mind. No, Jesus, you know I wouldn't do that. You know I wouldn't fall away. You can trust me. I'm, I'm loyal. You know, I'm persistent. You know, I'll be with you to the very end. And he tries to defend himself rather than acknowledge Jesus' words as true and humble himself. Instead of repenting, Peter is boastful. Never, Lord. I would never do that. And he doesn't want to admit that Jesus is right. That Jesus is right. You see, arrogance and boastful statements is not a sign of strength. It's a sign of weakness. True strength is when we admit we're wrong. True strength is when we admit we're wrong. Jesus is right, and we ask for his help and his guidance. The same account recorded in Matthew 26 is actually recorded in Luke chapter 22. And Jesus communicates to Peter, and he says this, Peter, I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. I've prayed for you, Peter. I am for you. I am not against you. Jesus' purpose in praying is that even though Peter will fail him, Jesus has not given up on Peter. Even though Peter will fail him, Jesus has not given up on Peter. And isn't it comforting to know that when we mess up, Jesus doesn't abandon us? Isn't it comforting to know that Jesus is still for us when we said we wouldn't do the thing that we said we wouldn't, and we end up doing it? Jesus is still praying for us. 
Jesus is still interceding to the Father on our behalf. Jesus is asking for mercy. And as I'm thinking about this whole conversation that Jesus is having with his disciples, can you imagine the weight and emotion that, must, that Jesus must have felt? Jesus knew that his disciples were going to abandon him. Jesus knew how Peter was going to respond and react. And rather than tear his disciples down, Jesus builds them up. I think there's a lot that we can learn in how Jesus responds. I've often heard it said that it's not that our perspective is wrong, it's that our perspective is not complete yet. It's not that our perspective is wrong, what we see is presently true, but we don't see the full picture just yet. Peter was sincere when he said that he would never abandon Jesus, but he didn't know the extent of what was coming. Jesus did. He warned his disciples what was about to happen, and he even told them how they would respond to it. But Peter refused to accept Jesus' perspective. Why? Because he trusted his perspective more than he trusted Jesus. He trusted his perspective more than he trusted Jesus. And this is the point. We defeat overconfidence when we humbly surrender our limited perspective and trust that God sees things we do not. We defeat overconfidence when we humbly surrender our limited perspective and instead trust that God sees things we do not. Give God credit that he knows things we do not. Give God credit that he knows things we do not. Proverbs 3, 5 through 6 says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. Isaiah 55, 8 through 9 talks about God's ways and his thoughts are higher than our own. God sees things from an entirely different perspective. What we, present, we, we see what is presently true. God also sees that, but he also sees what is future true. The point is, Peter's perspective is limited. It's incomplete. Therefore, it is wrong. Peter's perspective is wrong. Be careful to not jump to conclusions, make bold statements, because it's far wiser to err on the side of humility and accept that our perspective might be incomplete and wrong. Our second point is this. We need to be redeemed from our overconfidence in our ability. We need to be redeemed from our overconfidence in our ability. I'm sure you've heard the phrase, talk is cheap. Talk is cheap. The true test of our ability is not what we profess, but what's actually demonstrated in the field of life. All of us tend to overestimate our ability. Whether we're trying to impress someone, whether we're trying to defend ourselves or to maybe not come across as weak or we're intimidated by the talents of other people, we boast because we don't want to come across as weak. We boast because we don't want to come across as weak. And I heard this quote this week. It goes something like this. The hardest person to be honest with 
is yourself. The hardest person to be honest with is yourself. And when we're honest with ourselves, it's pretty humbling. It's pretty humbling. Jesus communicates to Peter what his self-reliant ability will produce. He says this to Peter, I tell you the truth. This very night before the rooster crows, you, Peter, will disown me three times. I tell you the truth. He introduces another warning to Peter. This is imminent. You will disown me. You will strongly reject. You will refuse to acknowledge or have any connection with me. This is not just a, eh, you know, we're, we're kind of buddies, but he's not really my best friend. No, this is Jesus. I don't know who he is. I don't have any connection with him. Jesus, I, I, I don't know who he is. Peter will prove to be even more disloyal than the other disciples by refusing to accept the truth that he's not as strong as he thinks. Peter is not as strong as he thinks. This is not a brief moment of lapse, but this is intentional. A catastrophic collapse of his inability to remain faithful to Jesus, not once, not twice, three times of what his self-reliant ability will produce. You see, Jesus knows how strong Peter actually is. Without God's help, Peter is unreliable. And it will confirm Jesus' previous words that he said to him and to all the disciples. Jesus said, if you remain in me, you will bear much fruit. But apart from me, you can do nothing. If you remain in me, faithful, trust, work on the relationship, you will bear much fruit. But apart from me, a self-reliant ability you can do nothing of eternal significance. Our ability compared to God's supernatural ability. It reminds me of a time in which a boy was carrying a, a 10-foot-long beam. He thought that he was so strong. You know, look, Dad, I'm, I'm carrying this beam. But when he looked at it from a different angle, the dad was carrying about 99% of the weight. I'm sure we've all kind of been there before. And that's like us. We think we're so strong, when in reality, apart from God's grace, we would all just collapse like a deck of cards. By the way, that little boy was me. <laughs> Unfortunately, Peter's response reveals his unwillingness to come to terms to accept his lack of ability to stay loyal to Jesus. Peter says to Jesus, even if I have to die with you, Jesus, I will never disown you. Even if I have to give my life, Jesus. Peter is desperately communicating that he would, you know, I would die for you, Jesus. I would give my life. But Jesus corrected him. He knew that Peter would disown him to protect himself. In John chapter 13, verse 37, it helps us to understand this conversation a little bit better. Jesus actually responds with a rhetorical question to Peter. And Jesus says to Peter, Peter, 
will you really lay down your life for me? Peter, will you really do that? Jesus is not trying to embarrass Peter, but to help him come to terms with reality. He's speaking the truth in love. Peter, let's be honest here. Let's be honest. You see, in our enthusiasm, it's easy to make bold and big promises to God, but God knows the extent of our commitment. 1 Samuel 16, 7 says, man looks at the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. Man looks at the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. It's far better to be honest with God and acknowledge, God, I'm weak, and I desperately need you. Yet Peter says, I'll never disown you, Jesus. I would never do that. Bluntly contradicting Jesus' words and communicating that he knows his ability rather than how Jesus knows him. It's kind of like the old adage, the higher you climb, the harder you fall. The bigger you think you are, the bigger the crash. Peter's vehemence, this strong feeling of passion and loyalty, only serves to make his failure even greater because he reiterated over and over and over to Jesus again that he would not disown him. And so if we're being honest, and as we think about this conversation between Peter and Jesus, who is Peter really trying to convince here? Who is Peter really trying to convince here? Jesus or himself? Yeah, himself. In Scripture, Peter was one of the first to acknowledge who Jesus is. When Jesus asked the disciples, who do you say that I am? Peter spoke up right away and said, Jesus, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Peter knew who Jesus was. And in a moment of feeling ashamed, he convinced himself of a comforting lie rather than accepting the unpleasant truth. Peter convinced himself, I'll never disown you, Jesus. A comforting lie. I'll never disown Jesus. Rather than accept what Jesus was saying, the unpleasant truth. The overreaction by Peter is communicating that he trusted his ability to remain faithful to Jesus more than Jesus, um, uh, more than he trusted Jesus' assessment of his ability. Peter was so certain of his devotion to Jesus that he could not imagine such a failure. And there lies the deceit of Peter. And it's this. We are all susceptible. We are all susceptible to falling and failing. And knowing that we can disown Jesus is all the more reason to trust and rely upon God's ability far more than our own. We are all susceptible to falling making a mess of our life, and knowing that we can is all the more reason to trust Jesus' ability far more than our own. Jesus communicates something 
in 2641, just a few verses later after this, Jesus communicates to his disciples, watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the body is weak. Our ability to do what is right is not in trying harder. Our ability to remain faithful and loyal to Jesus is not in trying harder, but it's in humbly relying upon God's ability, going to God in prayer. Going to God in prayer. The late Billy Graham is quoted as saying, a prayerless Christian is a powerless Christian. A prayerless Christian is a powerless Christian. And here's the point. We defeat overconfidence when we humbly accept our ability is exactly what God says, and instead we rely upon his strength. We defeat overconfidence when we humbly accept our ability is exactly what Jesus says it is, and instead we rely upon God's strength through prayer. You see, God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. His strength, his ability to do and to be what is right. When we rely upon our strength, we produce what only we can produce. But when we rely upon the Lord, we produce what only he can produce. Our third and final point is this. We need to be redeemed from thinking that we're better than others. We need to be redeemed from thinking that we're better than others. If we're being honest, we don't always say it out loud. But we think things in our head like, I wouldn't make that mistake. Why'd they ask that person to do it when I'm right here and I can do a much better job than they can do it? You know, why don't they ask me? Wow, they did that? Notice how Peter compares himself to his disciples. He says this. All the other disciples are listening, by the way. He says to Jesus, even if all fall away on account of you, I never will. Even if everyone else messes up and makes a big mistake, I won't do that. Peter is suggesting that he's not surprised if the other disciples fail Jesus. Peter is comparing himself to his closest friends, people that he's walked with and served with for three years being with Jesus. He knows them really well, and the other disciples actually look up to Peter. Yet here he is, thinking that he's better than the rest, the exception to the rule. Can you imagine how the others must have felt hearing Peter say that? Can you imagine what they must have felt hearing Peter say that? Romans chapter 12, verse 3, the Apostle Paul reminds us, don't think you're better than you actually are. Rather, think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance with the faith that God has distributed to each of you. Paul writes that we need to be honest with ourselves. Remember, the hardest person to be honest with is yourself. And he says to think, which means that we don't allow pride 
or comparing ourselves to other people to convince ourselves that we're actually better. But we evaluate our faith, sober judgment. How's my relationship with the Lord? How's my real relationship with the Lord and my commitment to him? You see, when we compare ourselves to other people, it gives us a false sense of security that we're better than we actually are. When really, in reality, we all have room for improvement to become a more accurate reflection of who Jesus is. You see, all throughout the Bible, God encourages us to think highly of other people. God's word reminds us to serve other people, to support one another, to comfort one another, to honor one another, to respect one another. In fact, in Philippians chapter 2, verse 3, it says, in humility, value others as better than yourselves. A more accurate translation of better is actually to esteem other people, which means to respect, to admire others. If we view them as better, it's just a comparison game. But if we hold other people in high regard, we consider it a privilege to serve them, not a burden. Jesus said, the Son of Man came to serve and not be served. Jesus, our example, someone that we look up to. You see, our life is not measured by comparing ourselves to other people. But in God's eyes, it's based upon humbly serving other people. Therefore, we become redeemed of our thinking when we see other people as God sees them. Jesus, someone to be served, not put down. We become redeemed of thinking that we're better than other people when we see people how God sees them. Jesus, someone to be served, and not put down. And so the question based upon this is this. Who or what do we need to serve this week that we thought we were better than? Why is that person asking me to do this? Don't they know my ability and my capability? And I can do, I can do so much more bigger and better things. Who or what do we need to serve this week that we thought we were better than in order to humble ourselves. So what have we been talking about? Well, our first point was that we need to be redeemed from our overconfidence and our perspective. Is there a tendency like you, uh, like Peter, to be overconfident in our perspective? Do you tend to think that you're better than God? Well, Here's the point. Surrender your perspective and trust that God sees things we do not. Surrender your perspective and trust that God sees things you do not. Our second point was that we need to be redeemed from our overconfidence in our ability. Recognize that I need God all the time in everything that I do. Sometimes my best is not enough. But when we humble ourselves, we are more open to receive God's strength. God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Third point was this. 
We need to be redeemed from thinking that we're better than other people. The greatest position in God's eyes is humbly serving other people. The greatest position in God's eyes is when we get down on our hands and knees and humbly serve other people. The opposite of overconfidence is humility. The opposite of overconfidence is not confidence. It's humility. And here's the truth. We have a choice. We can either learn to be humble or God will humble us. <laughs> we can either learn to be humble or God will humble us. God's word says in Luke 18, 14, for all who exalt themselves will be humbled. But for those who humble themselves, they will be exalted. We can all be redeemed from being overly self-confident. And it begins with humility. I need God. And I am nothing without Him. Just like Peter, I blurted out something to God. <laughs> Just like Peter, I blurted out something to God. And God had to humble me by revealing my overconfidence. The deeper rooted issue was this. I wasn't trusting God like I should have. I thought that if I just tried harder, if I asked other people to help me, things would succeed. Rather than humbling myself, going to God in prayer, and asking for his help, his guidance, his ability. Until I surrendered, asked for God's forgiveness, I was not fully usable by him. I believe we can defeat overconfidence. We can defeat overconfidence. The road to redemption begins when we humbly acknowledge our weaknesses reshift our focus to our reliance upon him. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for who you are. God, I thank you for your word that reminds us that you are an ever-present help in times of trouble, not only in the bad times, but in the good times too, Lord. We can go to you in prayer. And Jesus, I pray against Satan in your powerful name. We know that Satan's number one weapon is deceit. He tries to convince us that we're better than we actually are. You can say no to that or you deserve this. You've worked really hard. And so, Jesus, I pray by your Holy Spirit that we would humble ourselves. We would turn to you, Lord. Your grace is sufficient in all seasons of life. And so, Jesus, I pray that you would empower your people, Lord, to be your hands and feet, that we would trust your perspective, we would rely upon your ability, and that we would humbly serve others like Jesus. That as people see us, they see an accurate reflection of who you are. Jesus, you're doing a new thing, and it begins when we humble, when we humble ourselves before you. 
In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.